Son and Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. What a beautiful day, huh? And it's good to be together. We sing better when we're together, I can tell you. I hope you heard that too. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. I want to welcome you. Allison said at the beginning, but I want to add my word of welcome. If you're here for the first time, especially, we hope that you will feel at home among us as soon as possible. And we hope you can stay for coffee after the service. So today we're starting a new sermon series on 1 Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the church in the city of Corinth offers us some of the key teaching you'll find anywhere in the Bible on the Holy Spirit and on the church. And so we're going to focus on those parts of this amazing letter over the next six weeks. We can't cover the whole of the epistle in those weeks, of course, but we've got certain sections mapped out that we're going to look at. So the title for this series is actually taken from the passage we looked at on Easter Sunday morning in the Gospel according to John. Some of you might recall we looked at the text where it says that Jesus breathed on the disciples and gave them the Holy Spirit and sends them out in the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and we're looking ahead to Pentecost on June the 9th that's in the very middle of this series. And so this is kind of a Pentecostal sermon series if you want to think of it that way. When Judith and I were wondering if God was calling us to Guelph and to Courtright, we heard this church described as Presbycostal, which I'd never heard that term before. 
I don't think it goes back too many centuries in church history, to tell you the truth, but, but we really liked that, actually. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't the only topic that Paul covers in this letter. And as we start at the beginning of the letter today, the first thing we have to do is situate ourselves. Here's a map that shows the Roman Empire not too long after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. You can see Greece there kind of in the middle. And if we go on to the next map, you'll see a close-up which identifies the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth lay between the Aegean Sea to the east and Asia and the Adriatic Sea to the west and Italy, which, of course, was the heart of the Roman Empire. And Corinth was important because of the isthmus of Corinth. Let's say that fun word together, shall we? Isthmus. I challenge you to work that into a conversation this coming week. See if you can do that. You will get, of course, bonus points and perhaps have the privilege of sitting in this row, which I noticed no one sat in (laughs) next Sunday. You could sit in this front row. It would be lovely. If a close-up on the isthmus of Corinth shows us in this next slide uh, what its significance was. So if you were a trader, if you had a boat full of stuff to sell and you were coming from Asia across the Aegean Sea towards, say, Rome, instead of going all the way to the south, the part of Greece that's called the Peloponnesus, and 500 extra kilometers through very difficult waters, you could pull into the port that was located right here. And if your boat was small enough, they could actually take your boat and roll it across this six-kilometer-wide gap of land. If your boat was large, you would take out your goods and they'd be transported across and you you would um, put them in a new boat and resume your travels. And so Corinth controlled trade to the east and the west, most importantly, but also to the north and the south as well. And all these goods came through, leather, linen, wine, oils, spices, marble, among many others. You name it, people were getting rich off of it in Corinth. But the city at the same time was a place of glaring injustice. The rich were rich with no limits on their power and their corruption and of general moral chaos. In fact, the verb to Corinthianize became common in the Mediterranean world at that time. And it meant to be sexually obsessed and permissive and to act like it. No one cared in Corinth. Whatever makes you happy, whatever you can get away with, Go ahead and do it. Now, the Apostle Paul visited Corinth on his second missionary journey after spending a short time in Athens. You can see he started off in Jerusalem in 49 AD, and he heads north through Antioch, through what was called Asia at the time, and then crosses into what is now Greece. And eventually, after you can read about his stay in Athens in Acts chapter 17, in Acts 18... We hear about how his visit to Corinth went. When he's in Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, these leaders in the early church there. They were Jews who were expelled from Rome, ended up in Corinth. He stayed with them, and they actually went into business together, working leather and making tents. That was part of Paul's training. He also began to proclaim the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue before moving on to the Gentiles, when the Jews were not receptive, to say the least. It's not really hard to see why Paul spends all this time, these two years in Corinth, and why he chose it as the headquarters for his planned mission to the West. 
He wanted the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ to go as far as possible, and he was strategic about it. The city of Corinth was young, it was dynamic, it was not bound by tradition. It was full of people who would have been open to new ideas. They were dislocated individuals without strong ethnic identities, and they were most of all desperate to figure out what was successful life. What was the good life? And to get there themselves, to achieve social honor and material success. And Paul himself was quite at home in this big, bustling, cosmopolitan city with no dominant religious or philosophical tradition. Corinth was pretty similar to his hometown, Tarsus, although Tarsus was a fair bit smaller, and as well to Antioch, where he had most recently made his home. The heart of the city of Corinth was the Forum, which was filled with all these temples and shrines to the emperor and to members of his family, but also to older Greek gods such as Apollo. Now, religious practice always followed the trade routes. Traders would take their beliefs, and that's how beliefs got introduced to new parts of the world. So the residents of Corinth had all these different gods to choose from, including the mystery religions of Asia and the East. Really, the world of spirituality at the time was represented in the city of Corinth. And with all these temples, it seems pretty clear, maybe you're starting to get this picture, that it wasn't enough for the people of Corinth to be materially successful, to be rich. That wasn't satisfying them. They were looking for something more. Now, all of this, I think, sounds a lot like our world today, like our postmodern pluralistic culture. And so we have a ton to learn from this book, especially in the way that it charts out a course for the church. Paul identifies particular issues that the Corinthians were, were struggling with and says, here are the principles that you as Christians, as new Christians, can use to figure out how to deal with these challenges. So before we open up our Bibles, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that your word is timeless. It's relevant at every time in which the Bible was written. And today, it is the most relevant, most true thing in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you come and be present here with us as we sang earlier? Would you help us to see ourselves more and more as part of a togetherness that we call the church, that we are together in Christ? Help us to trust you first and then to trust one another as your words of eternal life sink into our minds and into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 25, but we're going to do it in three separate parts. So I'm going to break it up into the three natural sections that this text uh, is made up of. And we're going to start with verses 1 to 9. Paul, so this is how people started letters in that time, with their own name. It's kind of an, a signature at the beginning, if you want to think of it that way. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. 
God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we're going to look at Paul's foundational message for the church in Corinth. Each of the three sections we're going to read from the opening chapter of his letter makes a key point. First of all, he talks about the church's calling, that it's called the holiness and grace. Secondly, he talks about the church's failing, that it is divided, that it is inward looking, and that it is focused on the things that will lead it away from God. And thirdly, he talks about the church's hope, that we preach Christ crucified, that we live out of that truth most of all. And I want to encourage you to read and to hear everything that Paul writes in this letter as not just about you individually, right? When we read scripture, I think it's natural for us to apply it to our individual lives. But this letter more than other books of the New Testament, is written for the whole church. So if you're going to really grasp its meaning, if you're going to see how it can hit the ground running in your life, then you're going to have to think of it addressed to you as part of a local church, which was absolutely Paul's point here. So Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth three years after he had left the place. He was responding to some major problems that had arisen that he'd heard about, The church had grown, but it was divided, and it was in rebellion against the teachings of Paul. In his opening line, Paul sets the tone. He says, he's called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so he's reminding the church in Corinth of his own authority and where it comes from. He is an apostle, which means that Christ appeared to him in a particular, personal, powerful way and sent him out as God's chosen instrument. So he was one of only a few, not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, but equal in stature as an apostle. And then he goes on to remind the Christians in Corinth who they are. And really this whole letter is saying to the church, who are you? He says that they're sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Now sanctified is not a word you're going to hear very much out there in our culture today. But it means to be set apart. So you can think of a surgeon, right? A surgeon is a highly skilled professional who has certain tools that he or she will use. And those tools are kept in a special place so they don't get lost, so they're useful at the right time. And so to be sanctified means to be set apart for a particular purpose. And so the church in Corinth and us today as well are called to be holy, In Corinth, everybody was trying to get ahead. It was a rat race like few other times in history. And it could really help your career. It could really help your material success if you were prepared to cheat, to lie, and to steal. To cheat on your taxes, to cheat the government, to cheat your boss, to cheat your customers, to cheat on your spouse. But all of this cheating, all of this lying 
All these choices lead naturally into a kind of a chaos, a disorder, morally and spiritually. And we face those same challenges in our lives, I think. And so Paul begins with a call to holiness. That's the first thing he has to say. Do we do that? I don't know about you, but when I listen to sermons, when I hear popular Christian songs, the love of God is what comes through nonstop. Now, the love of God and God's holiness are inseparable, but the Bible teaches that God's holiness comes first. I recently read something that struck me as a useful corrective to how we think about God. Warren Wiersbe, who recently passed away, um, writes that love is central in God. He writes this in his commentary on Leviticus. He writes, love is central in God, but holiness is central in love. God's love is a holy love. For the Bible states that God is light as well as that God is love. Love without holiness would be a monstrous thing that could destroy God's perfect law, while holiness without love would leave no hope for the lost sinner. Both are perfectly balanced in the divine nature and works of God. So let's make no mistake, and Paul highlights it from the outset, we are called to be his holy people. But then he goes on, and the next thing he says in verses 3 and 4 especially is that he points to the grace given to us in Christ Jesus. Even though Paul has every right to be angry with the Corinthians, who have in a way betrayed his teaching, his leadership, gone against his authority, but Paul lays aside all those justified grievances because he wants to build up the church. That's his priority. He doesn't want to tear it apart. And he's laying the best possible foundation in this letter to do that. And so he invokes the name of Jesus Christ nine times in this short section. That's a lot of Jesus repetition. A friend of mine and I used to talk about JPMs in church. Jesus is per minute. You know, you have to get up to a high rate if you want to achieve the maximum effect. And of course, that's true, right? We want as much Jesus as possible, and Paul is reminding the Corinthian Christians whose focus had shifted away from Christ that that's where they need to dwell. Now, we don't actually read anything about the Holy Spirit in this first chapter of 1 Corinthians, but this series is about the Holy Spirit, and so I thought I would try to work that in. And, and one of the ways I can do that is that what Paul does here as he lays this foundation for the church in Corinth, and really every church needs to strive for this, is he's kind of playing the role of the Holy Spirit in a way. Do you know what the Holy Spirit does most of all? The Spirit always points away from himself to Jesus. The Spirit, you can think of the Holy Spirit as like a spotlight illuminating a beautiful building. What do you notice when you see a building? You see Church of Our Lady lit up at night. Do you go, oh, that's a cool spotlight at the bottom of the hill? Let's go gather around the spotlight. No, of course not. You notice the building. The Spirit shows what matters. He doesn't draw attention to himself and say, look at me, get my power, get my anointing. The Holy Spirit says, look at Jesus and what he's done for you. Look at his death on the cross and his resurrection. Put your trust in him. And that is exactly the focus that the church in Corinth needed to come back to. 
God is faithful, says Paul, and he never stops calling us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which can mean a relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship, individual relationship, but it also means, it's another word for the church. And so it seems like Paul is saying, if you want to have this real life-changing relationship with Christ, you need to have this relationship with the church, the local church also. It can't be this abstract thing, the church. You have to get involved. You have to dive in. We're going to continue our readings in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 now, picking up where we left off, verses 10 to 17. Paul goes on to write, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So this is Chloe who had sent messengers to Paul in Ephesus with reports about the church. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't even remember if I baptized anyone else. Don't you love that? This is a letter, right? This is not a theological treatise. Paul continues, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. So here Paul's explaining why he's writing his letter, the purpose. This is his thesis statement. He says, He's writing it so that all the Corinthian believers may agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among them, and that they may be perfectly united in mind and thought. I think we have a slide for that verse, do we? We sometimes make the mistake of assuming the early church had it all together. You hear people say that, right? Let's go back to the early church. Let's do things that way. But then, as it is now, the church was a mess. Sometimes I have coffee with people and they say to me, you know, I would consider this whole Christianity thing if Christians weren't such ridiculous hypocrites. Like if that that could come to an end, then I would give you a hearing. Then I'd show up on a Sunday morning. To which I say, why don't you start by reading the book of hypocrisy? We call it the New Testament. Where in the New Testament do you find anything other than the story of Christians failing, hypocritical Christians, Christians divided, Christians fighting, Christians with problems? And then I say, if you're such a hypocrite, or (laughs) then I say, if you're so concerned about hypocrisy, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. We've always got room for one more, right? 
Now, none of that, none of that is to minimize the first thing we heard from Paul, which is a call to holiness, right? Paul wants us to strive for holiness. He doesn't want us to get complacent about our hypocrisy. In Corinth, factions had formed around the church's different leaders. And that's something else that people object to in the church, right? People point to Christianity and say, you're all so divided. Well, it was happening, it really was, in Corinth. These factions formed around perhaps the teaching of these leaders we've read about, Apollos, Cephas, Paul, or maybe it was the people who they baptized. That's why Paul sounds a little unenthusiastic about baptism. He's talking about baptizing in his name, baptizing in Apollos' name, not true baptism, the baptism that divides, where baptism is meant to unite us, right? Or maybe these factions formed around ethnicity. Each of those three leaders mentioned was from a different ethnic group. Whatever the case, Paul identifies these divisions as a terrible thing that should not be happening. He says, he uses the Greek word schismata, from which we get our word schism. And it means tear, it means rip. The divisions in Corinth and the divisions we see today in the church, and I love the way Justin prayed our prayer of confession around those divisions and the unity that God calls us to, these divisions rip apart what God made to be one and what Paul later in his letter will call the very body of Christ. Paul is not arguing for uniformity in the church. The problem is not that different traditions within Christianity emphasize different things. I want to say clearly that I believe that the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, and the Orthodox, the three main branches of Christianity, are all part of the true church of Jesus Christ. The real problem is that Christians won't follow Christ, they don't obey him, and they can't seem to love each other, whether it's across denominational lines or within individual congregations. We find ourselves torn apart by our pride, by the factions that we belong to. And I love this next slide. I'm not sure if you can read it, but you've got someone teaching a church membership class there. And the the chart he's showing is all the churches and Christian movements throughout history. And he's saying, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And then there's a little monkey that comments, Jesus is so lucky to have us. Can you relate to that at all? Have you ever felt superior to someone based on your correct belief or the way you worship or the way you practice your faith? Are we at court right guilty somehow of pride, the kind of pride that the Holy Spirit cannot work with? You know, I think God once again showed that he has a sense of humor by giving me this text and the one for next Sunday right as I was preparing for a presbytery meeting on Tuesday night that was quite divisive, and then for General Assembly in the first week of June, which is like the parliament of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. Because in this, in my study of these passages is a challenge to me to not be proud like that, to lay down some of my defensiveness, some of my sense that I am right and others are wrong. 
So Paul wants us to stop putting our personal agendas ahead of Christ. He gets angry here. He asks, is Christ divided? You can almost hear him shouting through the page. Was Paul crucified for you, he asks. At the cross, at the moment when Jesus died, the moment when his body was torn apart so that we could truly live, all of our divisions and the bitter disagreements to which we are prone, all of these are revealed as garbage, complete garbage. Now, we often talk about repenting of our sins, but everyone does that, right? Even atheists do that. They will say sorry as quickly as the next person often. Maybe we need to focus more on repenting of our righteousness. And the Holy Spirit rushes to our side when we do that. The next reading from 1 Corinthians is verses 18 to 25. Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. That's a pretty full sentence. We'll come back to it. Don't worry. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Let me say that again. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. I like this dividing the reading up. When you say thanks be to God, you're really with me. I feel that. So is there hope for the church, right? We've come through all this division that Paul's pointing to. We recognize it in our own world, in our own church. Can it be overcome? Well, in verse 23, Paul sums it up. He lays out the hope of the church in one sentence. He says, we preach Christ crucified. Earlier, he wrote that Christ sent him to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, the Corinthians loved eloquence and wisdom. We're not that different, are we? We want to be entertained. We have so many choices and we jump around looking for something to satisfy our demands. Even in worship services, we want our own kind of music and we want sermons that tick all the boxes. Every Sunday, megachurches put on these huge shows that rival rock concerts. People will drive forever to hear all-star preaching or to check out the latest cool thing. But Paul is clear here. He says the gospel is Christ crucified. The basic Christian message cannot be built on words of human wisdom. So God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And do we believe that? Like, do, you, do we trust, do we, when we drive past a small little church, maybe some of you have the experience of growing up in a church with just 20 or 30 people. Maybe 
you are right now in a small group of people that meet during the week that is dwindling in size. Maybe it's just down to two or three people. Maybe you're part of a ministry or dream of a ministry that doesn't feel like it's destined for success. The foolishness of God is where our hope lies. Do we believe that God could work in spite of the appearance of things? Or are we looking just to be entertained, to get what we want? Paul says that Jesus is first and foremost the crucified God. He was the opposite of a success story. And yet Christians believe that Jesus Christ, this leader who failed so dramatically, shows us the way to eternal life. At his worst and lowest point on the cross, he reveals to us God's truth and wisdom. The cross of Christ changes everything. It invites us to change our minds. It demands a conversion. It overturns all of our assumptions about what is true success, and it leads us into the love of those who are God-forsaken and abandoned. Jesus calls us away from a life of self-interest. He calls us onto the path of self-sacrifice and service. It doesn't make sense. What would make sense is for you to do what works best for you, to act in your own self-interest. Jesus says, embrace my foolishness, which is the truest, best, most beautiful thing in the universe. And it's through Christ and through Christ crucified that God deals with our sin. He enters into our suffering. He identifies with us even to the point of death. And if we are not truly humbled by that, if we don't repent of our pride, then we will never be wise and we will never know God. One of my favorite movies is The Family Man, starring Nicolas Cage and Taya Leone. It's a movie that tells the story of Jack Campbell, played by Cage. Jack has made a choice in his past. He chose his ambition for success over the love of a woman. And he goes on to great success, phenomenal success on Wall Street, accumulating so much wealth. And yet he finds himself totally alone. And that's when an angel shows up and teleports him into an alternate future, giving him a glimpse of the life he could have had. In this clip we're going to see now, he's having difficulty adjusting to his new life in the suburbs.
It's $2,400. Are you out of your mind? Come on, let's go. She left those shoes. Those shoes were $25. Come on, take it off, all right? We'll go to the food court and get one of those funnel cakes you like. You're deadly crazy. No. Do you have any idea what my life is like? Excuse me? I wake up in the morning covered in dog saliva. I drop the kids off, spend eight hours selling tires retail. Retail game. I pick the kids up, walk the dog, which by the way, carries the added bonus of carting away her monstrous crap. I play with the kids, take out the garbage, get six hours of sleep if I'm lucky, and then everything starts all over again. So, so what's in it for me? Where, where are my, my energies? You know, it's sad to hear that your life is such a disappointment to you. I can't believe it isn't a disappointment to you, Kate. I could have been a thousand times the man I became. I could have been one of the richest Forbes. How could you do this to me? How could you let me give up on my dreams like this? Really, I want to know. just not the same guy that I was when we got married. You know what? Maybe you're not. Because the Jack Campbell I married would not need a $2,400 suit to feel better about his life. But I'm telling you, if that's what it's going to take, then buy it. We'll take the money out of the kid's college fund. Forget it. We'll get a funnel cake. It'll be the highlight of my week. So Jack says to his wife, Kate, wearing this suit actually makes me feel like a better person. He's being serious. And we can, we can kind of relate, I think, can't we? And then he goes on to ask her a question that reveals his heart. He says, what's in this for me? And she comes right back at him with the most important question. Who are you, she asks. He has some decisions to make. A $2,400 suit is a better suit, no question. No one's denying that. And Jack certainly has the wisdom, the power, the skill to get that suit and lots more like it for himself. Many of us have that kind of skill, that kind of ability to get things for ourselves. But here in this movie, Kate suggests another way. I choose us, she says later in the action. And she's prepared to lay down her commitment to their home in New Jersey in the suburbs as Jack gets a job opportunity back in Manhattan. I choose us, she says. So what what is really good in our lives? Do we even know what's good for us? More often than not, we put ourselves first. I choose me is what we're saying in our hearts. That, quite simply, is the problem of sin. But we preach Christ crucified. And we're called to reflect his extraordinary humility 
in our ordinary, everyday lives and the decisions we make day by day. And so the Holy Spirit redefines this statement, I choose us. And it's sad to note, but in a real-life parable, as happily as this Hollywood movie ends with Jack and Kate together, Nicolas Cage has been married and divorced four times. Taylor Leone married and divorced twice. Money, fame, the things that we so often seek don't pave the way to the peace, to the love that we crave and we need. The Holy Spirit takes that Hollywood ending, that statement, I choose us, and says, the us is different than what you think. The us is not a married couple. The us is not you and your romantic partner. The us is not your biological family. The us is not your group of friends. But the Spirit is asking you today if you will choose us in the local church. Because that is where we preach Christ crucified. That is where the Holy Spirit shows up. Will you choose us at Courtright Church as the us in which you will learn to live out this call to holiness and grace? This call to own, to acknowledge our failings, to confess our sins to one another and to live and to preach Christ crucified. Look, not many of us can make the kinds of speeches they love to hear in Corinth from the philosophers, the eloquent wise men. Not many of us have suits that cost $2,400. But the truth is that nice suits and the material things of this world don't make us better people. They don't even make us happy. And in the end, speeches can't change the world or even individual hearts. Only God can do that. He is the one who chooses us. And that is where our hope rests. Paul goes on to write in this chapter, he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose you and me. He doesn't want us to boast about our own abilities, our own achievements. He asks us not to put our own self-interest first. No, he wants to bring all of us together in Jesus Christ. He wants to heal the divisions in our families, in our church, and in our wider community. He wants us to put our trust in the Lord, who has become for us our wisdom and the hope of salvation. All glory be to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do the unexpected in the most delightful ways. We think of power this way and you turn it on its head. We think of success one way, you throw that overboard. And all of that in order to open the way for us to come home to you again. For us to be gathered together as the unity you so desire for your church. For us to be sent out, to be breathed on by you to receive the Holy Spirit and to share 
the good news of your grace in Jesus Christ with the world. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. to judge the time. It's hard to talk properly with the microphone off my head. It's hard to judge the time because we're at the 15 minute thing. I'm like, well, that's late. And then I thought, no, it's not that late. (laughs) I think, and it feels like, especially on a Sunday when we are focused on